Hello everyone, it's February 8th, 2022. This week it's another lesson from Ben on JWST. How do you keep a telescope really cold? We'll find out. And then we talk to Tupper Hyde of Goddard Space Flight Center on how you keep a telescope really still. It's a big show this week. Let's get it off the pad and lift off. the tower welcome to episode 345 of the orbital mechanics podcast i'm david i'm ben and i'm dennis and let's just like jump straight into the news mm. uh, unless you guys have a, a really good intro that's ready to go yeah this is gonna be a big good big show i don't really have one so i guess we could just go to the news we'll just pretend that we talked about something to do with some minor space event i guess or sure s- some new re- some like new <laughs> recipe that you've discovered ben yeah 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 okay cool um and with that out of the way let's move on to the news <laughs> JWST cryo cooler. So Ben, this is something that I think you've been looking into. So this is yeah. Yeah, I don't know if is is this a news item or more like no. an investigation that you're kind of it, just it's looking a, into. It's a JWST deep dive. Part four. <laughs> Mike in the chat says banter speed run. Yeah, yeah. sorry folks. Uh if you haven't noticed, this is a very long episode, so we're <laughs> We're trying to get through it. All right. So like you guys know that I love JWST and that I've been like doing little deep dives into different parts of the spacecraft. So this week I wanted to talk about the cryo cooler. So thanks so much to um, Gopal on on Twitter who like reached out and said, hey, the cryo cooler uh, would be a, would be a fun topic. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. This, this is going to be good. When I said I wanted to do it, I didn't realize how big of a headache learning about this cryo cooler was going to be. This is weird. All of the other topics that I've done so far in JWST, I have dug and dug and dug and looked for more information to satisfy questions. In this case, I have like three documents that all came directly off of the NASA page. Well, no, no, I think, I think I found one of them. Um, but like, this was an instance where I was like, no more information, please. I can barely understand what this says. So all of my research was just interpreting the documents that I was able to find on the JWST page. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. So the JWST cryo cooler is specific, it is used for just one instrument and that's Miri. And it, the Miri is the, uh, the infrared instrument. Um, and obviously like infrared telescopes have to be cold enough that they don't detect themselves, right? Cause they glow in the same spectrum that they're looking for or the same part of the spectrum that they're looking for. Um, and so Miri is cooled down to four Kelvin, which is nothing. And so when we're talking about the cryo cooler, there are two main components that you need to keep track of. One is the cryo cooler compressor assembly, the CCA, and the other one is a cryo cooler cold head assembly, the CHA. So the, the CCA is in the bus, which is on the hot side of the shield, right? It's the, it's the box at the very bottom of the spacecraft. The CCA is a very intense machine. It generates about a quarter of a watt worth of cooling power, and it does so operating at around 14 degree, 14 Kelvin, not, not degrees Kelvin, 14 Kelvin. 14 Kelvin is super, super, super low. Like this thing is running. The, the fact that this thing is able to put out a quarter of a watt is insane to me. Like I don't understand how at 14 Kelvin you can 
you can do this much cooling. And the the CCA, well, well the whole cryocooler is a three-stage assembly. Two of those stages are in the CCA, and then one of them is up in the CHA. So the, the CCA starts with what's called a pulse tube precooler. And and the purpose of the precoolers so I believe there are two precoolers. Yes. And I think and I think it's because they, they need to be offset in terms of when they pulse to right. cancel out any vibrations. So that's how you know there's two. <laughs> Thank you, Dennis. So there are two of these pulse tubes. And if you don't know what a pulse tube is, buckle up. They are like eerily simple mechanisms like it, it, it's a little disturbing how simple they are uh for what they do and um so the the simplest type of pulse tube is basically a cylinder with a piston on one end and a hose that leads to a large reservoir on the other end so the the reservoir is there to allow pressure to flow in without without that incoming pressure fluctuating up and down, right? Like if you have just a cylinder with uh, a piston, the pressure is going to go up and down. And so by adding this reservoir behind a constriction, the reservoir acts like an infinite source of pressure just because it's so much larger uh, than the than the tube itself. Um, but it's behind a constriction, so the, the pressure flows in slowly, so you can actually change the pressure of the pulse tube as you move the piston back and forth. And so by moving this piston back and forth, you're altering the pressure, you're making the pressure inside the tube go up and down, but you're also making the gas inside the tube move back and forth. And basically by placing heat exchangers inside this tube at, at specific locations, um, you can pump heat just with this pulse tube setup, right? Um, and, and so the idea is a loop. As far as I know, all heat engines work in a loop. You move in one axis, and then your temperature can go up or down, and then you move back, and then the temperature can go in the opposite direction. So you, you move in this loop. And in this case, um, the, the axis is not only pressure, but position. Uh, the pressure goes up, the position moves left. The pressure goes down, the position moves right. And so as the pressure goes up and down, it's altering the temperature uh, of the material. Colin in the chat is so far ahead of the game. Colin says, is it like a Stirling engine, but in reverse? So actually, Stirling engines can be used the, the same idea can be used as a cooler, a Stirling cooler. And in fact, this is very, very similar to a Stirling engine, except in a Stirling engine, you have a displacer in the middle um, that moves back and forth. In this case, instead of having a displacer, like a, like a solid, uh, a solid plate that moves back and forth in the, in the tube, you have gas, a, a gas plug is what they call it, plug in quotes, that uh, takes the place of the Stirling engine's displacer. Okay, so we have this tube with a, with a piston on one end, and it's filled with a gas. So the first thing that you got to understand is that there's a, a heat gradient inside this tube. It, it's hot at one end. It's warm at the other. It's also called hot. Uh, and then in the middle, it's cold. The, the gas in the middle 
is the cold gas in the middle is moved back and forth, but it's not mechanically separated from the higher temperature regions. So there is a gradient that sits on either side of it. Um, and so you basically get this sweet spot in the middle and the sweet spot moves back and forth. And that sweet spot is the coldest part. And it's also the gas that will fluctuate in temperature to, well, that's not true. I was going to say the, the gas in the middle fluctuates in temperature to pump the heat, but that's, that's not quite true. You're actually um, passing different parts of this gradient over different uh, heat exchangers to, to pump the temperature around. So the, the piston is moving back and forth. In the compression stage, it raises the temperature and pushes the gas towards the hot end of the cylinder. Heat flows out through the heat exchangers until uh, the heat exchangers reach equilibrium with their environment. And, and, you know, heat flow stops when you get to equilibrium. And then you enter the expansion stage, which lowers the temperature by lowering the pressure, but it also allows the gas to move past the, to, to go back over the cold heat exchanger in the middle, sucking heat away from it because now it's colder um, then the, uh, then the, the cold heat exchanger and it's colder because the pressure has gone down and that's, that's the expansion stage. So now you're back to, uh, the original condition in between these stages, uh, pressure is also flowing in and out of the reservoir. But again, it's doing that slowly so that the pressure does actually go up and down. This is like the simplest pulse tube that you can make. It also happens to be the most efficient, um, but it's not the only arrangement that you can have. Um, you can also um, form a U-tube or a coaxial arrangement. U-tube is the easiest one to understand. You basically split the, the tube in half so that the cold end is on one half and the cylinder or the, the piston is on the other. Um, and then you bend it in half. <laughs> and so the, the nice thing about doing that is that you get the cold end, the, the cold, you get a cold end instead of a cold middle. Um, and then a, uh, the coaxial arrangement basically does the same thing. Um, except instead of, um, gas flowing back and forth in the inline arrangement or up and down around a U in the YouTube configuration, it moves in and out from a center point and then it radiates out and then comes back in. It's a horrible description, um, but I, I barely, <laughs> barely <laughs> managed to wrap my head around this. So forgive me. In this case, the, uh, the JWST um, configuration is basically a YouTube uh, configuration, I believe, because they have what's called a cold finger. Um, so you've got like the, the entire, uh, pre-cooler looks like sort of a, a rounded cylinder, kind of like a, like a carbon overwrap pressure vessel. Uh, cause one end does, it's black. It does look like it's, uh, carbon wrap, but I believe it's just insulation, but you kind of have like this pressure chamber pill looking thing with a finger sticking up at the middle. And so in the big part of it, uh, the, the capsule shape bit, you have the reservoir and the piston that moves back and forth. And then you've got, um, in the middle kind of this U shaped, 
uh, bit that sticks up and that's the cold end that you're, that you're cooling. Uh, and, and like Dennis pointed out, there, there are two of these guys. Now, this is as far as I'm going to go talking about pulse tubes because there are so many additional complexities. First off, there's a porous regenerator, usually like a copper mesh, um, that fills the area between the, the piston and the, the, the heat exchanger on the piston end and the cold heat exchanger in the middle. Um, and it, it's, the regenerator is just sucking up and releasing heat to facilitate, <laughs> uh, keeping the, the middle of this gas, uh, thermal gradient cold. Um, so it, it can donate heat and then pick heat back up on its way back. Um, there's also, uh, acoustic, uh, heat transfer where there's actually, I don't think it's actually a standing wave, but there, there are acoustic effects that are happening inside of this thing, um, that are actually forming pressure, uh, waves. Uh, it, it's, it's truly, uh, more complex than I can wrap my head around. So, um, all right. So that, that's the pre-cooler. Um, what is the pre-cooler cooling? Get this. <laughs> the pre-cooler, the, the two pre-coolers are cooling the refrigerant, uh, that a high efficiency pump is circulating up into the CHA. So this is a, a, a three stage cooling loop. You are using cold stuff to cool cooler stuff, which cools cooler yet stuff. Um, luckily all of this stuff that's being, uh, cooled down, uh, working fluids as well as, uh, refrigerant, uh, gases, it's all helium gas. Uh, so at least we don't have to keep track of, uh, what gases where. <laughs> What's really interesting is, um, Later on, there's a Joule-Thompson effect cooler, and the Joule-Thompson effect actually relies on helium uh, or hydrogen or neon uh, being used as the refrigerant because those three gases all work uh, at lower temperatures, but they don't work at room temperature. Pretty much any other uh, gas can be used uh, as a refrigerant at higher temperatures, obviously some are better than others. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about why, why that is. Uh, but just as a little preview, uh, if you use gas in a Joule Thompson effect cooler, you get a cooling effect. If you use a fluid, you get a heating effect. So the CCA, all of the, the, the two pulse tubes and the high efficiency pump, those are all in the CCA, which is all down in the spacecraft bus. The CHA is up in the integrated science instrument module, the ISIM. That is up near the instruments. That's up in the, in the tower part of JWST. The refrigerant is pumped up there through two millimeter diameter, uh, gold plated stainless tubes. There's one that goes up and one that comes back down. And what's crazy is this, this piping assembly it, it's it's called the cryo cooler tower assembly it's just these these two tubes but it runs 10 meters to get from the cca up to the cha so 14 kelvin helium is running through 10 meters uh, of tubing 
uh, just it, it's it's crazy. So that's <laughs> that can't be tubing though. That's just kind of free floating around <laughs> that entire yeah. you know thirty foot span. So right. apparently they have these delicate suspension assemblies called refrigerant line supports that yep. every foot or so have to hold it into hmm. uh, place by mounting it to the actual structure. So can yeah. we imagine how? <laughs> delicate those must be yeah yeah right so uh i i was actually going to do this in, in the reverse order so i was going to say okay oh, sorry so check out the no 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 no, no. <laughs> i should have known cool. i should have known you were going to cover that no you, like you really this is here. this is so exciting i'm glad that like i'm not the only one excited but right so so the these these two millimeter tubes run these these 10 meters and not only do they run those 10 meters but the um the tower changes position during deployment, right? It, it moves upward to deploy. So these tubes aren't just placed in a static location. Um, and then I was going to say, yeah, so there are these refrigerant line supports. Um, and mm. by the way, I was going to say about every 30 centimeters, not every foot, but you know, whatever. <laughs> um, so, so the, the cryo cooler tower assembly, um, runs up the outside of the observatory structure, um, which, like makes sense uh because you're in space behind uh this very lovely sun shield but also it's like those things are 2 millimeters and they're key to to running one of your main instruments <laughs> like it mm. <laughs> doesn't mean that they're in- entirely unshielded i i don't know if they're shielded or not so we got these lines running up uh into isim what are they doing once they're there well they go through the third cooling stage, which is this Joule Thompson effect cooler. Um, the Joule Thompson effect cooler is about the size of a large coffee can. And it's, it's really, it's a cylinder with a, with a tiny orifice in it about, it's less than one millimeter and it allows the very cold helium to flow through this tiny orifice. And, and that's the Joule Thompson effect. You, if you flow a hot, high pressure gas through a constriction, be it a valve or an orifice or, um, you know, like a, a, a throttle, which would be, uh, like an hourglass shaped constriction that opens back up. When you do this, it gets colder. It, it, you go from a high pressure, high temperature gas to a low temperature, low pressure gas. Totally makes sense, right? Um, what, what's interesting is as intuitive as that is, right? The pressure goes down, temperature goes down. A Joule Tom, the Joule Thompson effect doesn't work with an ideal gas. An ideal gas is a, a, a fake gas, a theoretical, uh, approximation of a real gas, uh, that allows the, the ideal gas law to work. The ideal gas law doesn't actually work in real life because we don't have ideal gases. We have real gases. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the Joule Thompson effect only happens in, in, uh, real gases, not ideal gases. Just what makes them ideal is that assumption is that they don't interact with each other. Yeah. Right. It's, it's everything in a gas except for the collisions. And, and so like basically what it comes down to is if you have an ideal gas and you do this, this transition, no work is done. But if, if you have a, if you uh, have a real gas work is done, you have, um, a stochastic physical reaction. I mean, it's not a chemical reaction, but it's, uh, the entropy goes up 
and it's not reversible. Uh, work is done. Cooling can, can happen. Um, so basically a, a JT cooler is, it's basically the same thing as an AC unit, except AC units or, you know, the, the cooler in your refrigerator, uh, rely on phase change. Uh, but a JT cooler, um, just uses pressure change. Um, so after the gas or after the helium goes through the JT cooler, this, this large coffee can, it goes down to six Kelvin. Um, it's then piped through a little more two millimeter tubing to a cold plate. It's a palm sized copper block that sucks up heat from the MIRI detectors and allows that heat to get dumped into the helium. And then the helium can go all the way back down to the CCA, get pre-cooled and start the whole trip again. So all of this is, is really insane. Um, and they weren't exactly sure how well it was going to work. Typical systems like this have a pre-cooler, ha- have the pre-cooler and the JT cooler right next to each other, not 10 meters apart. Also, this, as far as I know, this is the first three stage cooler like this. Normally it's a two stage, uh, cooler. Um, and then there was one other cool thing that I didn't really have a good place to, to insert. So I'm just going to say it now. Um, the CHA also has a bypass, uh, that allows you to bypass the JT restriction, uh, during cool down. Like the initial arrival at L2, you'd go into the cool down mode, the, the cool down period. And, and they're not using the JT cooler for some reason, uh, at that point. Maybe we, uh, maybe we can ask. Oh, during our interview, I, I, I did look up and see why that is. And I learned a new word in the process. Okay. So from what I understand, the ability, like how much energy you can draw out that cooling power, they call that heat lift. And the Jewel Thompson has very, very bad heat lift at higher until at higher temperatures. Yeah. So yeah, so yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. let the pre-cooler cool it and they bypass it and then they stop bypassing it once it gets down to that. Yeah. 15 ish Kelvin or so. Great. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, cool. Thank you. So, right. They, they didn't know how this thing was going to work. Um, and so when they, when they tested it, they actually found out that the crowd cooler is twice as efficient as required. So they could have a bunch of heat getting dumped into JWST from an unexpected source and it would still probably be okay. Uh, this thing is over engineered to the max. Okay, so that's the cooling for the Miri instrument. There are additional instruments, but they don't take advantage of this cryo cooler. Um, they just dump heat out through the, the two radiators on the back, both the fixed ISM radiator and the aft deployable radiators. I already talked about this a little bit during the original deployment sequence. I wanted to correct something that I got wrong, and I'm really shocked that nobody else caught me on this one. So real quick, there are two of these radiators. I mean, it's multiple radiators, but they're all kind of jigsaw puzzled in with each other. So, uh, the fixed ISM radiator, uh, has the radiators for near cam and near spec, both the OA and FPA. The aft deployable radiator is a little ducktail that pops up. And on that are two different radiators for, uh, FGS and NIRSS. I'm assuming it's NIRIS. And those radiators, uh, allow cooling down to 40 Kelvin which is balmy, right? 
Um, Chris in the chat already joked about 14 Kelvin being a balmy for uh, a balmy temperature while 40 Kelvin is outright sweltering then. So I, I talked about these radiators as being covered in a black honeycomb. They're not actually, they looked at using black honeycomb, but I guess there, there was something weird about the manufacturing constraints that it, just, it they didn't really like it. Instead, they used burb, uh, which is one of my favorite words. And now it's one of my favorite acronyms. And I don't believe it's a backronym. It stands for ball infrared black. So B-I-R-B. And it's, uh, it's a proprietary substance. I'm sure there's some information about it. Um, maybe there's a, a patent I could have uh, gone and looked up uh, <laughs> and didn't. Um, but burb is um, a material that's deposited on a surface and it's real jaggedy, like at a microscopic level. It's got all these bumps and, and, and bubbles and overhangs. And that's what is what, it, what the radiators are coated with. Uh, burb can be damaged by direct contact, but apparently they're happy that if it's not damaged, it's clean enough to be near the op, the, the super sensitive optics on JWST. Burb, uh, has heritage. It was also flown on Spitzer, which is really nice. And it has really good emissivity at 40 Kelvin. But what's weird is that that emissivity is widely variant depending on the batch, uh, the, the, manufacturing batch and the, the the manufacturing includes deposition onto whatever radiator surface you're putting it on um, so they had to test it to figure out if it was good enough and they used this super super cold uh, thermal vacuum chamber I think it's called like a space simulation something or other um, but they they tested it and it, it was all above the requirements so uh, they they went ahead with it well, I've been saying that it's been deposited onto the radiator. The, the burb is deposited onto AL1350, uh, face sheets. I don't know if you've ever heard of AL1350. I've heard of a lot of different, uh, types of, uh, uh, aluminum and, and steel, uh, composites or, uh, uh, alloys. I've never heard of aluminum 1350. The spec, says 1350 is 99.5% pure aluminum. Uh, and what's crazy is they actually flew aluminum that was 99.6% pure. It just, it's a crazy material. I can't imagine how expensive it is, but they noted, uh, that, you know, it, it has really good thermal conductivity, uh, when it's this cold and also it's available in large sheets. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, available and affordable, I think, are not the same word in this context. <laughs> I'm assuming this stuff is very, very, very expensive. Um, but, you know, maybe less expensive than some of the alternatives. So this burb, I see, a, I found a PDF here. So the burb, like under a microscope, looks very, just like you said, very, it looks kind of like coral. It looks very, very bumpy. Oh, um, that's a good description. Yeah. Is that part of what makes it so good or like so effective is that it just has like more surface area? Is that why? One it like assumes. Okay. Yeah. Coral is a fantastic description. Mm -hmm. All right. There you go. That's the JWST crowd cooler as, as far as I could get it into my head. <laughs> well, I, mean, the, I think awesome. that was a pretty good description. Oh, well, thank you. I, I know that there's more detail that could be gone into. I just, I can't figure it out. 
my brain hurt so bad after researching pulse tubes all day long or all morning long. I, I can't do any more of this. I think we got the general principle. I mean, or at least yeah. I think that I think that yeah. I do. I mean, it seems pretty simple, actually, you know, just yeah. you described it. Well, that's the mm-hmm. thing is it's like it's eerily simple. Like, yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. so simple it shouldn't work. But, you know, I just love the context that you gave of how how this spans essentially the entire observatory <laughs> and yeah. it's happening the same time all these other things that are happening on the observatory that i guess are higher profile <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like mirrors unfolding and deploying the sun shield and all that and so it's just pretty wild but yeah and they still got some time till they actually turn on the cryo coolers but that's gonna be fun So, moving on to the three short suites this week. Dennis, you have the first one. Yeah. First up, Curiosity's wheels take a licking, but keep on ticking. A recent image of one of the Martian rover's wheels, taken with the Molly camera, showed extensive gaps and cracks in the treads. While the damage may appear alarming, the mission team has been well aware of the condition of the wheels, and has even implemented mitigation measures to extend their lifetime, including a software update that adjusts the speed of the wheels in order to reduce the pressure they feel from rocks. Recently, NASA has extended the time between wheel imagery from every 500 meters to every 1,000 meters, and say that based on the predicted odometry, the wheels should last through the remainder of the mission. So next up, InSight weathers a dust storm. The InSight lander has exited its safe mode, which was triggered by a dust storm on Mars. The level of dust, given a maximum tau of 2, reduced solar power on the lander causing the safe mode, though it was never in any great danger. For comparison, Opportunity experienced a tau of 10.8. However, dust on the lander's solar panels continues to accumulate, leading to predictions that InSight will not survive the end of the year. In order to clean the solar arrays, the InSight team is using saltation, a process by which grains of regolith are scooped up and dropped upwind of the panels in order to jar loose dust. With any luck, this will give insight a little more time. All right, and finally, Aster receives the first Part 450. Without getting too bogged down in the bureaucracy of it all, Title 14 of the Code of Federal Regulations Parts 415, 417, 431, and 435 cover FAA safety requirements and licensing for commercial launches and reentries. They were consolidated into a single 785-page document called the Streamlined Launch and Reentry Licensing Requirements Rule, or Part 450. It is intended to streamline multiple required licenses into a single five-year license that can be issued in a short time frame. The first ever Part 450 was issued to Astra for the Alana 41 mission, their first launch out of Cape Canaveral. The launch was delayed due to a ground support equipment failure, but is currently scheduled for Monday the 7th between this episode's recording and publish dates. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and maybe some follow-ups. We have some Mm -hmm. information from Uncle Willie uh, regarding a This Week in Spaceflight History. Uh, Last week, I believe it was. Yeah, so this is about uh, failing what? Well, so what I said was um, you really don't want your engine to run out of fuel, but it's not quite so critical if it runs out of oxidizer. 
And I threw out a couple of reasons and I was like, I don't really know. Let me know if you have better info. And Uncle Willie definitely did. One of the reasons, and I'm sure it's listed here, is that if you have something that is running oxygen rich, right, that's very, very corrosive. Just, you know, for starters, that's like not a good thing. And so you can really tear up the engine just for that reason. Um, I don't know if that would cause necessarily an explosive event, but, you know, there's that to start with. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there there are some engines that I believe intentionally run oxygen rich, at least for... I mean, mm-hmm. they're they're not reusable engines, but I I think that's a thing. I think that they're Russian engines, Russians, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But but like you said, that's that's not what makes the shuttle go boom. So uh, in uh, the RS twenty five in the in the SSME, the space shuttle main engine, the pre burners run fuel rich. Running O two rich would cause hot oxygen in the pre burners, and hot pressurized oxygen is a bad thing for metals like. Like you pointed out, David, the main combustion chambers actually run hydrogen down the down the sides. They kind of do like this laminar flow. They inject uh, hydrogen around the edge to form a, a curtain of relatively cold uh, hydrogen uh, gas to protect the walls of the chamber. Losing that cooling uh, leads to burn through. And a very bad day. <laughs> so that's the big one. And I don't know how we didn't think of that. Oh, you, oh, don't, don't eat. Well, hang on. Just, okay. <laughs> that's point number two of four. <laughs> uh, point number three, the nozzles are regeneratively cooled using hydrogen, right? They, they flow mm. hydrogen through the nozzles. I actually thought it was oxygen. So this is a, a nice little point. Uh, the no- nozzles are regeneratively cooled using hydrogen. Uh, losing the cooling leads to burn through. And yeah. a bad day. So you, you could pot potentially get combustion chamber burn through and you can potentially get nozzle burn through. I tend to think the nozzle burn through would happen faster. Point four, the loss of the fuel rich environment in the chamber and nozzle would lead to engine rich exhaust and a bad day. <laughs> yeah. And so, well, that's something that I did know and, I, and it just didn't occur to me, you know, like right there in the moment. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, uh-huh. that's a pretty obvious reason, yeah, because yep. you have hydrogen circulating through that nozzle, and it, I would think it only takes a split second for things to go very, very badly. Yeah. Heat up pretty So there you go. Thank you, Lily. Welcome to the interview segment. Today we have Dr. Tupper Hyde, the chief engineer at NASA's Goddard Sensor. Welcome. It is delightful to have you here. Well, thanks. Good to connect with you guys. I've been a long time listening. Ugh, makes me feel fantastic. Thank you. Okay, so before we get too deep into this, could you tell us what you do at Goddard? Yeah, sure. I'm the chief engineer of Goddard Space Flight Center, and NASA has, you know, 10 centers spread across the country. The ones that mainly do science missions are JPL out in California and Goddard in Maryland. JWST is by far our biggest mission, and everybody is breathing big sigh of relief that it's uh, <laughs> launched and deployed and seems to be working well so far. It's still in the process of cooling down and figuring all the mirrors in to be in their exact right place. I'm still holding my breath a little bit, you know, in, until the, the science pictures come back in, in mm. May that we know that absolutely everything works. But um, so far, all of the, the scary stuff that's kept me up at night for the last 
10 years uh, are all working. So just a, a real quick uh, overview of your history. You're welcome to get into more of this uh, if you feel it's appropriate, but um, I, I love talking about people's education and, and how they got to where they are. Um, so you got a, a bachelor's at MIT, um, and then you went to Stanford for a master's. Is that correct? Right. And, and you did uh, robotics at Stanford? Yeah, there's a space robotics lab there. And okay. um, I did uh, not a thesis, because you don't have to do that, or a master's at Stanford, but all my research was on space robotics. Uh, did you do, uh, if you didn't do a thesis, um, there's a, an alternative to a thesis, and I wonder if it's what you did. I can't remember the name of it. Did, what, what was your, did you present your research in any way? Um, no, it was just projects within the aerospace robotics lab. PhD students at the time were working on flexible robotics and oh. uh, also free-floating yeah. robots. So I did some independent studies on uh, on those two aspects of space robotics. Oh, that's cool. I, I think that's better than, uh, than a thesis a lot of the time because uh, it better reflects the real world, right? Um, so af after you got your master's, you went to, you went back to MIT for your PhD. Um, yeah, after some time in the army, I was uh, ROTC Oh, okay. Uh, undergrad, so you get a, a delay for uh, for doing uh, grad school, but after uh, my master's, I had to go into the army. That was during the first Gulf War, but I was still in training when the war happened, so I was in okay. Oklahoma. Left there to go back to uh, finish my PhD uh, back at MIT. So kind of boomer boomeranged back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of fun. From there, did you go back to Army or did you go over to NASA after your PhD? Yeah, so I, I've stayed in the Army Reserves all the way through okay. um, as an intelligence officer. And in the last um, maybe 15 years, focusing specifically on um, space parts of intelligence, you know, what mm -hmm. um, foreign countries' capabilities are. Mm -hmm. But um, when I finished my PhD, I worked for a startup which was kind of a spinoff of our lab at MIT. My thesis was on making spacecraft not vibrate uh, when you get down to the nanometer level for telescopes and uh, interferometers and other precision things. You know, every little moving part of the satellite creates a vibration that can affect the performance of the instrument. So my research was on making spacecraft not vibrate, and I did that as a startup for a little while, and then uh, got hired away by Honeywell Space Systems out in Phoenix, where mm. I, unlike most PhDs, I actually <laughs> applied directly what my, my research was uh, in, into practice, mainly on classified satellites. Um, Mm. Making spacecraft not vibrate. Something about the phrase making spacecraft not vibrate is funny to me. <laughs> um, it, I mean, it does sound very, very important, though. Yeah. Right, right. It's funny. It's it's funny in a pleasing way. Okay. And, and then you wound up at, at Goddard. Um, and right. what, what year did you start at Goddard? In 2002, uh, we moved back to the East Coast. Um, the reason was partly family reasons, but also being in the aerospace industry as kind of a third tier supplier. You know, you have the government who's who's setting the mission. You have the aerospace primes uh, like um, Boeing and Northrop and Lockheed and Ball. 
who are directly responding, and then you have the suppliers to the primes, and Honeywell was, was one of those. So, you know, to the extent I could, I tried to participate in the formulation of missions, but it's kind of hard to do from, from three levels down. So coming mm. to work directly for NASA was, was great. And at the time, um, LISA, the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, was kicking off, which required not just nanometers, but picometers of, of quietness. And then um, what became the James Webb Space Telescope was also uh, just underway. Uh, when I joined NASA, we were in blackout for the for the selection of the prime contractor in 2002. If you're familiar with, with JWST's design before the prime contractor was selected, can you tell us a little bit about what that looked like? Yeah, sure. I, I got involved um, partly as a grad student where we were working on technologies for quiet spacecraft, which applied to JWST. And one of the disturbance sources is the reaction wheels. They spin, you know, up to 6,000 RPM. And no matter how well you try to perfectly balance them, it's not perfect. So they, they put a sinusoidal force uh, at the tens of millinewtons level into the spacecraft. And so you have to isolate that away. And so part of my research was, you know, working on techniques to passively through springs and dash pots, just like you learned in freshman level physics class, and also through active measures. And JWST ended up designing uh, isolation not only between the wheels and the spacecraft where they're attached, but also between the spacecraft bus and the rest of the telescope. There's a, a second stage of isolation in there. So Mm-hmm. Um, that that was my tie to JWST even before I came to NASA was researching on those things and I was part oh, of the cool. proposal teams um, from um, in during the study phase before the actual proposals were put in NASA funded studies with Lockheed and TRW and Paul and I was on all three of those teams I think as sort of supporting uh, with attitude control and vibration control um what kind of uh of mechanical dampers did you look at like just like linear dash pots because i mean that's that's basically a, a spring right like yeah i mean uh the classic dash pot is uh a, a fluid that moves back and forth between two chambers and honeywell has a product uh that does exactly that called d-strut um but for it to work at the nanometer level, you cannot have any sliding. So, you know, a mm. classic mechanical dash pot that moves inches would have a seal, you know, a piston that slides like the shock absorber in, in your car. Um, but for it to work in an optical system where the motions we're talking about are very small, then it's actually a sealed uh, bellows. So the, the fluid moves from mm. one side of to to the other and you program the amount of damping you want by the viscosity of the fluid and the size of the orifice between the two sides. Mm. In JWST, uh, a different approach was taken. Um, TRW had experience with their dampers, uh, dash pots in, in the isolator being made from a viscoelastic material. So if you imagine, uh, a gummy bear um, about that size of a gummy bear being melted and, and glued between two pieces of uh, aluminum that are 
supporting the wheel, that gives you about the kind of uh, damping because it's a viscoelastic as our gummy bears. I found out I, I melted some and put them in a strut and they work just as good as the space qualified stuff you could buy. So. <laughs> Um, so, so is it, is it basically like a rubber grommet works? Uh, in the yeah. Same? It, one piece moves relative to the other piece and then there's a, a piece of yeah. this rubbery material in between, but it pure rubber doesn't have that much damping, but this viscoelastic material sure. does. So that's what's in JWST. Yeah. Okay. Right. You don't have a bellows moving back and forth or a plunger moving back and forth. It's, it's a highly engineered material that yeah. can sit between yeah. okay in the case of the wheels they uh, don't have any launch locks so uh, under under launch vibration those soft struts that are that are holding each of the six wheels kind of bang around in their stops but there is some uh, rubber at the edge of those stops so that it doesn't uh, damage anything so okay that was going to be my next in, question yeah, yeah once once you get up in zero g um you're not touching the stops, so so they don't matter. But um, during uh, ground handling and and launch, they do bang around on the stops. Is that a consumable? Like, if you experience too much vibration on launch, is that is that one of the places where? So for for the launch, there was worry about how much vibration the the spacecraft was going to experience. But that wasn't about these dampers getting eaten up. It was about no, the, no. the instruments. Okay. No, there was there was never concern about these particular um stops. What what kind of travel are we talking about? I mean it's it's gotta be millimeters, right? Yeah, when when you're on orbit and you're in zero G and you're is isolating, you know, a few millinewtons, it's only, you know, micro microns or so of, of motion. But during launch when it's moving between the stops, yeah, I think it's millimeter or two not not that much yeah it's gummy bears don't hold up uh, <laughs> over a long distance <laughs> okay cool that's that's a good way to to visualize that um we think of jwst as being this like infinitely delayed uh vehicle way back in the beginning did it seem like that was going to happen? Did like what was the the feeling uh, of developing this? Like you said, there, there's this back and forth trying to actually figure out what the requirements need to be. I, I guess this was at the beginning of your career, so maybe you didn't have uh, a terrible amount of context. But can you talk about it looking back, having worked with other programs? Yeah, in in a way, it was really a, a great time to be involved in a mission like this um, because, you know, like there was not a big team, you know, the, the Goddard team was only a couple of dozen people. So we were every day with, you know, John Mather, the project scientist who's, you know, trying to sell this to, to uh, the scientific community as well as stakeholders like Congress and, and NASA itself. By the time we get to 2002 and the prime contract is let, how it's going to look is pretty much nailed down. And at that time, I think launch date was like 2011. You know, having a launch date that's seven years in the future and always <laughs> seven years in the future was, was kind of a, the, mm -hmm. a, a big part of the development. But yeah, like I say, I started working on it in 97. It launched in 21, so that's 25 yeah. years uh, and uh, some some people's whole career, right? It it must have been so thrilling to finally see this happen. Did you did you ever feel like you were on a treadmill, just 
never getting closer to the end or or was the progress that was being made yeah there was there was progress at every year um right you know we're getting close i i think the the biggest delay was the project never had the money it needed in any one year right. and right partly that's just the way you know big big projects are funded. Congress wants to give you a flat amount every year, but projects never run with a flat amount. There's a, there's a ramp up and then there's kind of an extended peak where you're fixing everything and getting it to work. And then there's a ramp down and there, there wasn't money in the years where both the spacecraft and the payload, the telescope and the instruments needed to be worked on. So the project decided, which was the right thing to decide at the time, to put off the, quote, easy stuff, which is the spacecraft, uh, and instead concentrate Mm. on the telescopes and the instruments. So they they were done. You know, the telescopes and the instruments were, were all integrated together at Goddard and tested and then sent to Johnson Space Center to go in the biggest chamber that is a, <laughs> is the biggest clean chamber and and be be tested there and then delivered out to Space Park in LA for for Northrop to to put the bus on it but the the bus was not ready right uh, and the sun shield so you know because we had sort of delayed the easy part the easy part still had its normal normal delays of putting things together and and so that's i think kind of the prime reason that it got extended out there there wasn't the money when it was needed to to keep going on all fronts and so we had to kind of go into sequential flow instead of parallel flow well so there's been cost overruns which is you know kind of to be expected but do you right. think that since you didn't have the money like in any given year that that caused it to cost even more later down the line or yeah i'm sure people will be analyzing this for forever but the same thing happened on hubble <laughs> and right. uh, yeah. you know there's no guarantee that it won't happen on future very large decadal class you know these are the biggest science experiments that the country does and but I, I think we are learning where you get technology done up front so there's not those kind of surprises and then also put in appropriate reserves and put in the funding profile that's appropriate you know don't don't try to uh, peanut butter the cost over over many years because as you slide your knife across the hump of peanut butter and drag it off to the right <laughs> It, it generates more peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> so how how well uh, frozen were the the requirements placed on the easy part? Like, so if you're doing the instruments first, it seems to me that like if you haven't designed the bus and the sun shield, those those requirements for those easy parts can flex if you need them to while you're working on the on the science half did, did that occur was it actually helpful in the end to to go sequential not really the requirements on the bus uh did not really evolve you know a, a lot of times every almost every other space project i've worked on the, the mask grow, grows up right and then and if you do hit your launch vehicle limit then you go into all these mass reduction exercises which can take time and money mm-hmm. that didn't really happen to jwst after about 2004 there was you know there was some mass growth between 2002 and 2004 but after that things were things were pretty well nailed down and the bus is the spacecraft bus is not 
that complicated you know there's batteries mm-hmm. and computers and radios mm-hmm. and and some of the uh, cryocooler parts cryocooler is interesting the the warm side of the cryocooler is down in the bus but then the liquid helium carries the cold uh, up a tiny tube that's wound like a slinky up to where the uh, the coldest instrument which is married uh, uh, gets its cold from yeah okay okay so um unbeknownst to you i actually did uh, a focus segment on the cryo cooler system earlier in this episode and so yeah so so we talked about how the cryo cooler uh is it the tau cryocooler tower assembly how those um those two millimeter pipes run 10 meters is that 10 meters of of longitude of lateral this i guess vertical distance or is that including the coil uh yeah i'm not sure the the coil is necessary because well two reasons you know the whole telescope deploys up away from the bus Mm. um about a meter i think four feet and um that's to to get you know the the cold telescope away from from the warm bus so so that uh, slinky of a tube you know had to be flexible enough to to stretch when the telescope mm-hmm. pulls away from the bus and then also you don't want to transmit vibrations up through a, a hard pipe you know if if there was actual you know a hard pipe carrying that fluid it would be a, a source of transmission of the vibration that where the tower attaches to the bus there's this very soft connection. So when the spacecraft is moving it, the whole observatory around, it, it pushes with, I don't know, uh, a tenth of a newton meter or so, and then that torque applied by the wheel goes goes through that isolator and moves the whole rest of the observatory. So the telescope is only sort of softly connected to the, to the rest yeah. of the spacecraft. It, it's such a magnificent design. I mean, it's just... It's unbelievably mm. complicated and it, it looks beautiful and it looks complicated, but it doesn't, it, it's way more complicated than it looks. I'm, I've been really shocked learning about it. So is the, is the entire length of that tubing uh, a telephone cord or is it just, just the near segment? Just of the, the part, just the part that okay. ex- where it extends up. Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. That, that makes a lot of sense. Well, since we got distracted about um, vibration, cryocooler is, is another source of vibration. Yes. The, the, the reaction wheels is the, is the biggest one, not being perfectly balanced. Uh, but the cryocooler is another one. It has a little piston that moves back and forth uh, at roughly 35 hertz, I think. You can, you can dial it up or down. But that is, is compensated within the design itself, uh, with a opposing piston that moves equal and opposite and cancels out the vibration. And there's a little controller that uh, looks at the load cells where the compressor is attached to the spacecraft. There's uh, load cells. And so there's a, a feedback loop that looks at those load cells and, and adjusts the amplitude and phase of the, of the balancer to, to exactly take out the force. So what we end up isolating after the cryocooler has done its job of, of quieting itself is, is really just a tenth of a newton or less uh, that, that gets through. 
and then that's uh, further attenuated by this stage of isolation going up to the telescope. What I'm getting is that some of this you try to isolate, and that is one way of removing vibration, but then the, the other way is to cancel it out. And so I guess how do you make that determination? I mean, perhaps it's obvious, but um, like what are the methods that you use? Yeah, for, for JWST, everything is passive isolation with the acceptance of this uh, cryocooler canceller that we talked about, but other techniques that you could employ are actual active control. We've, in, in paper designs for the next decadal, you know, the, the 2020 astrophysics decadal just came out a few months ago, and they recommended going forward with a, a super Hubble that is called Louvoir Large UV Optical and Infrared. So it's it's kind of all the science that Hubble did, but but bigger, six and a half meter. And for that, uh, we would also employ, you know, some even better isolation where the telescope doesn't touch the spacecraft at all, except maybe through its umbilical cords to bring power and data across. Although, if, if you really wanted to, to go with uh, no contact, you could do that as well, right? You could pass power through a transformer, you could pass data over a, a optical link, and, and there would be no physical connection between the spacecraft and the telescope. Um, when you wanted to slew to a new target, you would put forces across uh, magnetic actuators, voice coil, type actuators like like are in the mm. speaker like in your speakers um, to, to pass the force across so that's sort of the next generation that wasn't done in JWST but if, if you wanted a factor of a thousand or more attenuation in the vibrations between what's on the noisy bus and what you can't allow onto the quiet telescope that that would be the, the next thing to do. Yeah, because actually I was kind of thinking that, but I thought that sounds a little bit too crazy. That can't be a real thing, but apparently <laughs> it's something that you're considering is just, you know, completely isolating it from the bus and you just like using magnets. So I guess that's totally an idea that uh, like we might see at some point in the future. That's pretty cool. You talk about this as the next generation. Are, are we talking the, like this is possibly the next great observatory, right? Yeah. Um, the decadal that just came out, I mean, you guys could, could, could get, uh, as a guest, maybe some of the astronomy folks who participated in the decadal study. But I think it was really eye-opening for the, you know, every 10 years, the entire astronomy community, at least in the U.S., gets together and they decide sort of what the future goals of both ground-based and space-based astronomy should be. And they put out their report before JWST launched. So, you know, it was kind of rolling the dice to, to be so bold as to say that these really big telescopes like Hubble and JWST, you know, that take 20 years to build and have price tags around $10 billion are still worth doing. So we've talked about all these different sources of vibration and being able to dampen them out passively, but there's also an active... Uh, system on JWST, the FGCS. Could you talk about that? Yeah, sure. So that's part of the pointing. Um, we we mentioned, you know, a, a normal spacecraft with star trackers and gyros can can point to, you know, maybe a, a handful of arc seconds. For JWST, if if you were only using the spacecraft attitude control with its star tracker and gyro, the accuracy would be like seven arc seconds, and the stability would be like one arc second. And that doesn't nearly cut it, right? Um, 
if you're you're doing these really long observations that could be 10,000 seconds long, you have to hold the, the light that's going to land in a certain pixel to a fraction of the pixel, right? It, it can't smear around into the neighboring pixels, or, or that would be the same as having uh, an unfocused telescope. So the telescope itself is diffraction limited at two microns, meaning, you know, uh, if if you did lambda over d and used lambda of two microns and the d at six and a half meters, you get 68 milliarc seconds. And so if you if you sized your pixels to be like that amount of resolution, then you have to hold your your light onto those pixels to maybe a tenth of that, right? So hmm. the the re stability requirement of of the light landing on the focal plane is seven milliarc seconds. So that's about what Hubble is as well, seven milliarc seconds for the for the same reason, right? It's lambda, lambda over D. And the only way to do that is to find to find guide. You you like I said, uh, the uh, the spacecraft by itself can only do seven arc seconds. So you're off by a factor of a thousand uh, that needs to be fixed. So that's done by a fine guidance control loop, uh, which consists of a fine guidance sensor, FGS, that was made by the Canadians. Uh, that looks uh, out at the at the at the stars, but it locks onto guide stars, not necessarily to the to the science stars, um, but in a different part of the field of view of the telescope, you you find some guide mm. stars, and uh, that reads out at 16 times a second uh, as to to where you are and. That has a noise on it that's only like three and a half milliarc seconds. So that's that's the ultimate guider that's telling you how good you're doing. And then you feed that through a control system to the fine steering mirror, which um, if you follow the light through the telescope, it bounces off the big primary, which is the 18 segments. It goes to the secondary, which is out on the end of that tripod, comes into the guts of the telescope off a of tertiary. Those three mirrors themselves create the three mirror anastigmat, which is, which is, uh, bring, brings the, the light down to a beam that's about the size of a dinner plate, which bounces off this fine steering mirror about the size of a dinner plate, but that can can steer it and hold it to this seven milliarc seconds of stability so that that fine loop is is taking out all the sort of wandering around that the spacecraft would do on its own and then at a very slow bandwidth the spacecraft unloads that fine steering mirror so if if the fine steering mirror started you know moving off of zero zero you know left right up down if it starts getting too far off the spacecraft steers the whole observatory back and puts the FSM back toward the center of its range. But that happens at a very slow time scale, mainly due to thermal disturbances. Um, so could you could you tell us a little bit about the the development history of the of the fine control system? Uh, were any alternatives considered? What's the heritage? Yeah, so it, 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 during that study phase from about 1996 to 2002 when the prime contract was left, um, there were lots of different designs. There was a, a design for the telescope that had a four-meter um, monolith, not segmented, and then there were different schemes for deploying the segment. Uh, the one that we eventually selected, people call drop leaf because it looks like your coffee table where the where the leaves uh, fold down. Mm. 
on the left and right wings. But there had, were others that were more like a, a pedal. So let's say there were six or eight pie wedges, and half of them folded forward and half of them folded back. And that, that works with six or eight. And that would have, was also a concept. But in terms of the fine steering, I think all versions, uh, all, all these contractor studies that participated between 96 and 2002, there was Lockheed one, a Ball one, a TRW one. And the government itself had a, a design, which we called the yardstick. The yardstick was very useful because it was public. Right. If the if the companies were working on something proprietary that they didn't want the other proposers or competitors to see, they could they could do that. Um, but the fact that the government had her own paper design with really good analysis of you know how how good it was that at least left because it was public, it was available to to everybody. That that was sort of the yardstick, right? You you have to do at least this good, right? Because we we costed out the yardstick. We had performance estimates of the yardstick. We had mass estimates of the yardstick. We had designs of all the, the latches and hinges. And, you know, what actually flew is kind of kind of close to what the yardstick was. But because it was public, all, all the teams that were doing their own studies could, could hold up their design against the yardstick and say, oh, you know, we have to do at least this good, right? <laughs> mm. And then what we ended up uh, selecting and ended up flying was TRW's design with balls, mirror configuration. They had, they had a test bed out at Ball that had 18 segments in it, and that's where all the algorithms of putting the mirrors into the right place were eventually tested. So to prove that it not only worked in the computer, but it worked with real, real glass and real photons. So to get to your question specifically, the pointing system did not really change that much. I think all the designs had a sort of off off the shelf attitude control system for the bus and a fine guider for the uh, telescope with a fast steering mirror well, not fast a fine steering mirror fsm mm. that uh, kept everything stable so i guess i'm just just to clarify for me then so that means that the fgs is is operating using the same three mirrors to yes and seeing uh -huh. the same field of view and everything as whatever other instrument is operating at the time is there like a, a beam splitter at some point that sends some of the light to fgs mm. and no or... it's 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 done in the field of view e each of the science instruments is uh, a few arc minutes across and the the good light that that comes all the way through the primary secondary tertiary is tens of arc minutes of cross, so they share that uh, field of view. So the near cam camera, the near spec spectrometer, and the MIRI mid-infrared instrument, and the Canadian nearest and FGS combination all sort of uh, share real estate in that field of view. And you just design your observations so that the science light lands on whatever focal plane is supposed to take the data. And simultaneously, the guide stars, uh, which are brighter than the science light often, um, land in the FGS field of view. I think we can track multiple guide stars at the same time, and then you get to average them. So let's say you have five guide stars that are being centroided and spit out. You, you take the average of of those and you get a more less noisy 
reading than if you were just looking at one star. You get to divide by square root of n. So if, if you're looking at five mm. guy stars, you get uh, whatever noise you would have gotten from one divided by square root of five. Okay, so you're familiar with our two final questions. Where would you like to be found on the internet? And then overrated, underrated. Um, for where would you like to be found on the internet? I assume that just your Twitter handle would work. Was there any other links that you would like to mention? Yeah, sure. I have. I'm on LinkedIn, and then um, the the Goddard homepage. And if you want to see about uh, the different engineering disciplines that we have at Goddard, the Engineering and Technology Directorate (ETD) also has its own homepage that describes what we do for mechanical, electrical, instrument, and software engineering, as well as gene and scene systems, which I was the uh, division chief for gene and scene systems before I moved into this kind of role. And some of our interns are, uh, the applications have to be in by March 4th. So uh, if undergrads or even high school students are listening, or grad students, um, go quick, apply to all the NASA <laughs> internships that are available, intern.nasa.gov. And then uh, your Twitter handle is uh, Tupperhide. Really yes. easy. All right. Our final question is a little game of overrated, underrated. Uh, I'm sure you, you know what's coming at you. It's a list of topics. And I want you to tell me whether you think that society as a whole uh, overrates, underrates, or you know correctly values uh, these five things. Sound good? Yep. Okay. First, uh, cell phone vibration mode. Underrated. I use it uh, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, great. Uh, the Spitzer Space Telescope. Underrated. It's it's the science that is telling us what JWST needs to do, and it's a great story. If people want to go back and look at Spitzer it was supposed to go on the shuttle, and then it wasn't, and then it was, and then it wasn't. Uh, it's, mm. it's it's a great um, design. Gunpowder rockets. Uh, I have no experience there, so I'll pass on that one. <laughs> oh, but but uh, Goddard does. Right, that, yeah, uh, that's what Robert I was H. There. Goddard. Yes. Yep. We we yep. have a we have a model of uh, his rocket there on the campus, and um, if you get a, a Goddard award of a, of a significant mm. rank, you get a little model of a of a Goddard rocket as part of the award. <laughs> that's lovely. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's really that's really lovely. Okay, we're we're going back to cell phones for this next one. Overrated or underrated wireless cell phone chargers? Uh, overrated. I haven't uh, found a, a use for for them yet. Uh, and finally, overrated or underrated? Aluminum and silicon-coated Kapton. Definitely underrated. This is the saving material for, for James Webb. The sheets that form the sun shield that, that keep a million watts of heat on the sun side mm -hmm. of the shield and only let one watt of heat get off the, uh, the dark side of the shield uh, could only happen with um, very lightweight and strong material. That's Kapton. And then with uh, the coatings you mentioned, um, to to uh, create the, the thermal properties. Oh, okay. Uh, I am such a <laughs> JWST fan. Uh, I love learning about JWST and, and listening to people talk about it. So this has been such an enjoyable uh, little interview that we did here. Thank you so much for the conversation and for the knowledge. Sure. Glad to do it. 
so moving on to this week in space flight history we have a bunch of winners uh we have deskin miller law loving carter kinley patrick mcguire leon running man bram and the greek so lots there the clue which i guess was pretty easy was 102.2 degrees and 77 protons and this event was on February 10th, 2009, and this was the collision of Iridium-33 and Cosmos-2251. So a big bad event um, back in 2009. And uh, this was, in fact, the first collision of two intact satellites in orbit. So not like a piece of debris and something else, but two actual satellites. So you had the Cosmos-2251, which was 950 kilograms, um, and that only operated for a few years uh, between 1993 and 1995. And then there is the Iridium-33, which was 560 kilograms, and that was operational at the time. And, and at the time, it was just one of 66 satellites. I don't know if there's more in the Iridium constellation now. I didn't check, but that's how many there were at that time. Um, and then I guess they were down to 65 after that. So one interesting thing, <laughs> I mean, well, actually, they had a, they had spare satellites in orbit as well. So mm. they have more than that. But as far as operational satellites, you know, just the 66. Right. So basically, how could this happen, right? So how do you have a, a collision like this occur? So uh, there are multiple organizations that monitor possible collisions, but not many. Uh, there is one interesting one uh, called uh, Celeste track. They track objects that are orbiting the Earth, and they actually predicted that these two satellites would miss by 584 meters, um, and that was not even at the top of the list for that day. So there were actually other satellite collisions or object collisions that were more likely. So, uh, you know, they didn't notify anyone. This didn't seem like a big deal. But like exactly what does Iridium do? And I guess we're not even going to talk about the Russian side of things because uh, they seem to have pretty much abandoned this satellite. And I don't think that they do any uh, tracking for collision avoidance at all with defunct satellites, or at least as far as I know. Um, I guess we don't know exactly what goes on at that end. Uh, but there was very little that the Russians had to say about it. But as far as a company that's actually operating a constellation of satellites, you know, they obviously have a vested interest in, you know, like knowing where collisions might occur. So um, as I'm sure we all remember, back in 2007, there was a Chinese ASAT, which is when they shot down one of their own satellites. So in response to this, Iridium wanted to start getting collision reports. And for this, they used the Joint Space Operations Center, or JSPOC. They were receiving reports fairly frequently. They had like over 400 reports every week. And that seems like um, a bit of a data overload because we know that there's probably not that many avoidance maneuvers every week. So clearly they're getting a lot of reports uh, that weren't, I guess, necessary. But um, I guess I'll leave you to be the judge of whether or not they were necessary. I don't know. But John Campbell, the uh, executive vice president for government programs at Iridium, uh, he kind of questioned the accuracy of these reports and he kind of thought these are way too many reports. We can't keep track of them all. Most of them are not going to result in a collision. So we should really only know about the most dangerous possibility of a collision. And actually the rationale, and there's an interesting Wikibooks chapter, I guess you can call it, on uh, this incident and how no one's taking responsibility for what happened. But basically, Iridium thought we can try to do these avoidance maneuvers, but this might actually cause a collision because we don't know with uh, the proper degree of resolution, you know, exactly if this collision might occur. And I can see how that could actually happen. So you might move to actually miss a collision and then you could push the satellite into a collision, if that makes sense. If you're on the highway 
you don't want to just blindly hop out of your lane to avoid a collision if there's going to be another car in that lane that you're then slamming into. And you might actually, you know, ram into the car that you're trying to avoid because if you don't know exactly, like, if it's bearing down on you or not, then it might be the best course of action to just not move at all. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that was kind of the rationale there. Yeah, it, it's it's more like uh, like two cars, one car going the wrong way on a highway rather than... Because like if you if the car in front of you stops and you swerve out of your lane, unless you hit another car that's heavy, like heavier, like if you're if you're going to hit a light, you're going to hit a marshmallow that's stopped in the middle of the road and you swerve and you hit a car that's bad. Um, mm -hmm. But otherwise, like if you're going to hit a car, you would rather hit a car with your with your side, a side side collision rather than a. Uh, a rear end collision just because the car that you hit on your side is going to be moving closer to your speed rather than stopped but a car going the wrong way on the highway then you're totally getting into this kind of situation and it's weird because like it costs nothing to swerve um but i think the problem here is if you don't know that moving is going to solve a problem it's not a matter of like second you know do they know that we know that they know that we're going to move? Like what it really is, and that's not what you were suggesting, but like what it really comes down to is like, is it worth spending effort to do something if doing something is totally ineffective? Like if it's not clear that there's a point in moving, just, just don't move. Like don't, don't worry about having to figure out where you have moved to stick with the knowledge that you have now until you know that you need to move. I, I, I think, I mean, like I don't, I'm not super familiar with this, but that's what it sounds like. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But, uh, you said, you know, it doesn't cost anything to swerve on the highway, but it does to move a spacecraft in space. Obviously you have to spend fuel. Um, and that was another reason. So if you were doing all these avoidance maneuvers every day or every week or whatever, um, you're quickly depleting the lifetime of your satellite. That just does not make good business sense, although it also doesn't make good sense to lose a satellite entirely in low Earth orbit. Uh, but I guess they opted to basically stay the course unless there was a very high probability. But I guess that all didn't matter either way because at some point between 2007 and 2009, they stopped receiving reports from JSPOC. And uh, it's not clear what happened at that point, like exactly why they stopped getting the reports and what they did in response. But it seems like they didn't do anything. They just, you know, weren't getting updates anymore. So they were kind of flying in the blind at that point. The Department of Defense claims that if there was going to be a collision, then they should have or at least would have been notified, but that didn't happen. So, But there's a reason for that, which is just that they didn't know either. Um, because they cannot keep track of everything. That was their defense. That's what the DOD said. So anyway, the collision itself that occurred at 789 kilometers, that was above the Tamir Peninsula, which is in extreme North Russia. It was at 97.8 east longitude and 72.5 north latitude. So those are the coordinates, and basically it's not too far from the North Pole. And Cosmos, I, I guess what caused this to happen or made this collision a possibility is that Cosmos had drifted down from a higher orbit because uh, it had been, you know, dead for some time. Uh, the collision occurred at 102.2 or maybe 103.3 degrees. I'm not sure. Um, I I've found some PDF documents that say 103.3. Um, the clue was 102.2, but I guess I'll accept either answer. It doesn't really, really matter. So real quick, um, mm -hmm. when you say it, it occurred at this degree, I think a lot of people will think that that means degrees of latitude. Uh, or degrees of longitude, but um, what we're talking about is a relative angle between these two satellites, right? Right, yeah. The collision angle was 103.3 degrees, correct. So, like, dar darn near 90 degrees. I mean, like... The <laughs> Pretty close, yeah. Th this is this is really a right angle 
it's it's crazy that that this can happen at all. Yeah, T-bone, yeah. Yeah, a real cosmic T-bone there. The relative velocity was 9.2 kilometers per second. But again, I've read some other estimates that say like something like 11 point something or other. And needless to say, very, very fast. Uh, that's a ridiculously fast speed. So what what is the the relative velocity? Is that their closing velocity? I guess that's just the velocity, the closing velocity. Right. Well, because that makes sense because that's that's basically orbital velocity. So you'd mm -hmm. have to be at ninety degrees because if you are, if one is catching up the other, the relative velocity will be much lower than orbital, and mm -hmm. if it's a head on, it'll be double orbital velocity exactly. so right angle yeah. it makes sense that it would be yeah okay cool yep that's the only angle where it would be about orbital speed i think it's actually a little bit more but not by much but that too makes sense because at 102.2 degrees i mean this is more head-on uh than alongside right if that makes sense yeah you don't even have to think about the eccentricity of these orbits to to get a little bit above orbital velocity so yeah good mm -hmm. good Good work, good way to work through that number. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, the tracking of the debris. So, they didn't want to track the satellite. So, let's talk about the tracking of the debris uh, that ensued. Uh, so, as of 2011, because I found some documents that are all kind of old, I'm sure that there's more updated stuff somewhere. But basically, you know, stuff was written just following the collision because I guess that's when it was much more newsworthy or publishable or whatever. Um, but as of 2011, Cosmos 2251 produced 1,668 pieces of trackable debris. Um, and of course, that's not even to mention like all the stuff that you can't track. So we're talking about stuff that's what, like over 10 centimeters uh, in size. That's generally the threshold for anything that you can track. The iridium produced 628 pieces, so slightly fewer. The cosmos debris began to spread over a, a wider altitude regime, um, so stretching from 200 to 1,700 kilometers. So if you have 200 kilometers, right, and this is um, this report was in 2011, that's a couple years later, so you can see how the orbit might have decayed, which it would have, because if you have the collision at 790 kilometers, I imagine it couldn't be any lower than that. But, you know, like after it decays, then obviously um, you can get some pretty low altitudes there. And some of the debris, not much of it, went into a much higher orbit of 1,700 kilometers. This was not as extreme with the Iridium satellite. I guess the shape of the satellite, perhaps, maybe, um, I'm not sure. Maybe it has something to do with the exact angle that they collided or the exact orientations of the spacecraft when they collided. I'm not sure. But most of the debris stayed at the altitude that it collided at. So that's where most of it remains. And so because of Cosmos's lower inclination and the faster relative speed, uh, the debris cloud spread faster due to precession. Uh, so it kind of created a shell in the span of about three years. So it took some time for that to happen, but basically it covers the entire planet now. So yeah, so let's talk about the area to mass ratio because that's important in how long it's going to take this stuff to deorbit. So the iridium has a greater area to mass ratio um, due to the solar panels and the lighter materials. And I think also just maybe, and I could be wrong due to how those solar panels were arranged because they sort of extended away from the spacecraft. With the Cosmos, the solar panels were actually fixed to the body itself. So they kind of sat kind of like on a dragon or something, at least a service module. So maybe there were some larger bits that were flung out and were completely pulverized. So you have a, a slightly larger sheet of material, uh, which gives it the bigger area to mass ratio. And so that should result in a shorter lifetime um, and indeed, the charts that I saw do predict that. Um, but again, these are mostly predictions. I'm not sure what the current numbers are, but you have roughly half of the debris of the iridium compared to the cosmos, but there is still some remaining from iridium. 
roughly 25 to 30% increase of collision for objects in orbit as a result of this. Uh, so again, that was what the number was back then. I don't know what it is now, slightly less, I suppose, but mm. there's still a lot of crap out there. And yes, yeah, so after the collision, like as I said, Iridium moved its spare satellite to fill that slot and they resumed normal service. As far as what the consensus was after all this had happened, it, it never really got resolved. Iridium says that they weren't being informed and the Department of Defense says that they can't track everything and that they don't have any obligation to do so if it's not a government satellite. So they tell the private sector, you have to be responsible for tracking your own stuff. You can't rely on us to do it for you. Um, and Russia has nothing to say about it at all. So they just, you know, said, yeah, you hit our satellite. Sorry about that. But anyway, yep. So that is true. This week in space flight history, uh, just a bad collision. The first big, big one involving two satellites in space. And, uh, let's hope we don't see any more, although we have seen mm -hmm. some since. So, yeah. This is the one that's always referenced, uh, in the news whenever there's like a, a near miss, like the, uh, Starlink and Aeolus near miss. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll always say, you know, the first big collision was the Iridium and Cosmos in 2009. Yeah, it sucks. I think things are getting better, right? We, you know, things are better tracking abilities and, you know, the organizations that launch stuff into space are being held more accountable for having to deorbit them and uh, keep space clean. Yeah, whether things are getting better or not is really down to a matter of how you value it because, like, there's certainly more debris every day. I guess it'd be better to say that it is more of a concern that people are taking seriously. Sure. But maybe yeah. the amount of mass that's being launched into orbit is outstripping people's willingness to remove it. So, Cer I mean, that is, that is certainly true. Although we're we're headed in the right direction, at least in our in our intentions, <laughs> if not in our actions. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, that was a terrifying uh, this week in spaceflight history. We have a little bit of a weird thing happening. Dennis is not going to be here next week, but it's supposed to, like he would be the next in the lineup. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and do his next week, uh, but I'm still let him read the clue because he came up with the clue. So uh, next week is the 15th to the 21st of February. Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 2007, B.C., more like B, see you later. <laughs> All right. If you have a clue ah. as to what this fantastic Jape is referencing, shoot us a tweet. Use the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. All right. Moving on to the final segment, upcoming space flight events. Uh, we have five of those this week. So, Dennis, what is that first one? Well, first up is a... Uh potential astro launch uh they have a new uh net of monday uh february 7th which is after our recording but before you are <laughs> listening to this presumably and therefore uh it's kind of more of one of these kind of keep an eye outs uh, it might have already launched but otherwise uh it might still be in the next uh, day or two and so uh again this is astra this is their first launch from the cape and this was after a delay uh from saturday when there was a range radar issue uh mm. that put them back a bit and so again that's uh, an net for uh monday february 7th after that is a soyuz stb with a frigate upper stage launching one web 13 uh so 34 one web internet satellites going up and that is launching on Thursday, February the 10th at 18.09 hours UTC and uh, 37 seconds. Um, that's launching out of uh, Kourou, French Guiana. And then after that, on February 13th slash 14th, uh, we have an Electron, and that is launching Black Sky 16 and 17. Uh, the mission name is Without Mission to Beat. 
a cool name. <laughs> um, so this is a Black Sky or a pair of Black Sky satellites uh, for a, which of course is a commercial fleet of Earth observation spacecraft. They've had many of those. Um, they've launched them before. And uh, the launch time is 055 through 0300 UTC. And that will be launching from Launch Complex 1A on the Mahia Peninsula in New Zealand. And then here's one where we do not have a time, but we have a date. And so on February 14th, there may be a PSLV or Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle launch. And uh, this would be, uh, you know, this... Uh, Indian launch vehicle would be taking uh, RISAT 1A, which is a radar Earth observation satellite. Uh, this was delayed uh, from 2021. And so, uh, again, hopefully on February 14th, at some point uh, to be disclosed in the future, <laughs> uh, it will be taking off from Satishtawan Space Center in Sriharikota, India. And last up is a Soyuz 21A flying Progress MS-19 also known as ADP, 80P as in Papa. <laughs> uh, so the 80th uh, progress mission to the International Space Station. It's going to be launching on Tuesday, February 15th at 0425 hours UTC um, out of the Baikonur Cosmodrome, pad 316. NASA TV will be covering the uh, rendezvous and docking uh, of P80 to the ISS. The coverage will begin on Thursday the 17th at uh, 1 a.m., 1.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, and the docking is scheduled at 2.08 a.m. Eastern Time. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. And with that, let's do up at the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jakey's and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, sometimes for many, many hours. <laughs> thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Deathkin, Chris, Colin, Mike, VT, Leon Running Man, Gopal, Chubby, The Greek, Fonji, Psy Kyle, and Delta V for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such show notes, and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. Thank you.